Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, everybody, it's Eric Clark, and welcome to the next uh, Mega Brands podcast. It's been a while, so uh, super excited to get into a really fun conversation with a, a retail brands and retail expert, um, Raul Sharma. Uh, his Twitter handle is at retail underscore guru. Um, I have, you know, we've had a lot of fun banter going back and forth, particularly around earnings releases with these brands. Roel is, you know, he's a former global consumer fund manager for City and Alliance Capital. He's now in Portugal. And um, gosh, the, the amount of wisdom that he brings to the retail and consumer sector is second to none. So I highly urge you to follow him on Twitter, uh, particularly around earnings reports, because he he provides great summaries of all of these companies and their reports, as well as any you know trends that he sees. So he's a really good follow on Twitter. Um, super excited. Today's chat is Tuesday, March 29th. Uh, let's talk consumer and retail with Raul Sharma. Hey, Raul, how are you? Good, Eric, how are you? I'm doing okay. I think we both, uh, we're both spoiled. I live in San Diego and you live uh, just uh, outside of Lisbon, both wonderful places, right? Absolutely, and particularly in times like this when uh, things are a bit uncertain, the sun shines more than often, uh, which is a good thing. Absolutely, and it's getting a little bit better there? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, very specifically, it's very strange. We've actually had our worst weeks of winter over the last couple of weeks, but yes, it's it's been it's been a warmish winter anyway, so can't complain. And getting back to normal, hopefully a little closer to normal anyway, from a COVID perspective. Yes, I think so. I mean, and people have generally been sensible, so we've never been silly about um, masks, etc., outside in the open air. But indoors, people people are generally responsible. But I think there is this whole element of. Yeah, COVID fatigue. I mean, there's there's no denying it's it's everywhere and, and it becoming more endemic and learning to live with it as opposed to 
being scared the whole time. I think that's certainly changed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the you know, we, we both traffic in the consumer uh, in the consumer spending theme in, in a variety of different ways. Um, you know, we, we talked uh, a little bit, of, you know, in, in the intro that you have a massive amount of experience running consumer portfolios. And was that mostly consumer discretionary and staples or did you kind of branch out into other, you know, things, let, let's say consumer tech, like an Apple or something, or did you, you, did you stay very close into the, the staples and discretionary basket? So that was in some ways towards the end of it, it was, was pretty much a trial by fire because you ignore consumer tech as your peril, as you know, as we now know of the market that we've had for the last decade or so. But early on, there was a company called Amazon, which was the tiniest bit of my benchmark, right? Which you could happily ignore. And then suddenly, because of performance, it grew and grew and grew. And suddenly you couldn't ignore something that was, even back then, you know, the big daddy used to be Walmart, which in many ways was a safe company to ignore because you generate your performance by focusing on stuff outside of Walmart, which is a very well-covered, efficiently covered company. But suddenly Amazon was the one that was inefficient that most people on the consumer side completely ignored for the longest time. Is it because it sat in this area between tech and uh, consumer, right? And it grew and grew and grew. And suddenly you were missing out. Well, it would be hard to perform if you hadn't, you know, on Amazon. I mean, there were other examples at the time, you know, Garmin for the longest time was, was doing very well. Remember that? That was, um, uh, you know, and SatNav technology was the next big thing. These things had, so there are fads and then there's Amazon. So, so increasingly, yes, you, I had to do consumer tech as well. Sorry, long story short, but, but because that was the growthiest part of the consumer. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, I always, I always have to remind you of the financial advisors that I'm talking to that, that over, you know, three, five, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, the two best performing sectors are tech and consumer discretionary. And, and, you know, we're a consumer economy here. We're a global consumer economy. I mean, I think Mackenzie said 60% of world GDP is consumer spending. So you're talking about 40 plus trillion every single year. And yeah. so if the consumer drives the economy in most places and can, and technology is at the center of what businesses and consumers are doing, I guess it's not very surprising to me that those two sectors more often than not tend to perform pretty well. And yes, I'm sure they're, they're top heavy with a handful of, of you know, the mega brands, if you will, which is why I, I created what I created um, on the brand side. But you know, everybody has you know, pretty healthy exposure to tech what I've found is that most people don't have a ton of exposure to consumer, which I always found strange, given that it's, you know, 70% of GDP here and 60% of world GDP. You, you would think that that would be a pretty well represented part of people's portfolios, and it really isn't. And I think that's fair. I mean, I, I find consumer really fascinating for a particular point. I and mean, even if you narrowly define it, leave aside the consumer tech story, right? If you, if you just look at consumer staples and consumer discretionary, just between the two of them, A, they're a big slug of the market, but not only are they a big slug of the market, the amount of diversity you get within that space is incredible. So you have something all the way from the very cyclical end uh, as a Ford or a Daimler, you know, which is pretty much the industrial kind of stock that you want to Coca-Cola, to an Amazon. So the sheer variety of what you have, I mean, you can spend the whole, you know, you can spend 
the whole year just looking at different bits of consumer and still not be on top of it. So it's a very deep sector. Yeah. Um, and, and, then, and then the other thing I think is, I, I think one of the reasons you're right, that it is underrepresented. The fascinating thing about consumer um, is um, you also have, I mean, yes, it, in some ways it's very top heavy. So if you think it's been very safe generally, unless times are really hard to underweight a Walmart. So the bigger weights in the sector um, tend to carry the most representation. And that's where people are underweight many of those names. So they don't have as much exposure, but the ability to create a lot of value by covering relatively well, less well-covered names is, is pretty high, I think, in this space. Again, because there are inefficiencies and, and people, you're right, it's, it's sexy to look at tech all the time. Um, but, you know, so, so, so that's another fascinating angle to me. And I think the, the one thing I would say, the one lesson I've learned about consumer, and I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but was a lesson beyond 2009. I mean, if you look at any chart, particularly at times of stress, looking at broadly consumer discretionary, but very specifically retailing, um, look at its correlation with financials. It's almost one-to-one at times of stress. And it makes sense when you think about it in hindsight. Um, and I learned this the hard way because I got burnt by owning a lot of really good retailers around 2009. Um, the same thing with the autos because they have these big finance subs that basically carry all the financial risk. But when the banks almost went under, most of the consumer companies, the retail companies, behaved like they were going under. Right. Very few of them did because they have much better balance sheets. Um, they don't carry the same macro risk, but that's that was both a painful experience, but also a huge opportunity because you had names trading trading like that. You know, Nordstrom is a very different company, and you and I have gone back and forth about this today. But back then, Nordstrom was was a very good business, and yet it went from like fifty bucks before two thousand nine to two, three, four, five bucks, and it went all the way back to fifty because it was ridiculous at that point for a company like that to trade like it's going to go under, but. It's the end of the world, right? So very tight link to financials makes sense because it is about the financial health of the consumer, but probably not as leveraged as the market thinks. And it, it happens time and again with the sector. Yeah. You know, let, so let's talk about the consumer. I mean, it's funny, you know, three, four months ago, the narrative was the consumer is the healthiest they've ever been. Their balance sheet's strong. You know, the wealth effect is strong. They have a ton of uh, savings in the bank to, you know, fast forward, consumer sentiment is on the floor. I mean, literally back to other typical trough periods of deep recessions, um, you know, the, the consumer balance sheet is still strong, obviously at the low end, you know, the, the people have had good wage gains, but inflation's high across the board. We're all getting squeezed. I don't know if you guys are, I'm assuming everywhere around the world, everywhere. prices are kind of going higher and, and that affects the lower income cohorts first, and then it starts to creep up the longer it lasts and the, and the more severe it gets. So, you know, what's your take on, on the consumer currently and their ability and interest to spend, given that we do have inflation, um, even though they do have some good wages and, and, and a pretty decent balance sheet in aggregate? So I veer towards, at least for now, being relatively optimistic. And I think it's mainly because, again, it's hard to reconcile, right? If you look at consumer confidence, particularly in the US, we are at 2009 levels. We are at worse than that. And is your situation really that bad when jobs are still relatively plentiful? You're getting fairly strong wage gains. And the interesting thing is, 
the market and a lot of investors want to trade it like that with every single data point, the consumer, you know, the retail sales number is going to fall out of bed. And it hasn't. I mean, this, this number in terms of confidence and another proxy for that is disapproval of Biden. You know, which is, I hate my government, my, my, uh, my inflation is up, blah, blah, blah. We've been hearing this since what? I can think October, even September. That's when consumers' confidence suddenly seemed to go through the floor. And here we are almost six months on. And frankly, there is no discernible impact and slowdown, even at companies. And we can come to a couple of exceptions, even at companies where you would expect it to, where I think businesses aren't that great and have mostly been coasting a stronger consumer. And I'm thinking of many of the department stores and thinking of, you know, even there, trends have been quite strong. And yes, we're going to come into stimulus labs and we can talk about that, you know, and we're already in that phase, though, and you're not still not getting those signals. Um, so, so to my mind, I think the whole point about stronger balance sheets, I think, yes, the, the higher end in the US has been, a, I, I don't see that changing, has been the bastion of growth, right? And I think with those people, there's so many different things going on in terms of strong end markets and not just the stock market. And this is again, a global thing, like you pointed out, asset markets are so strong everywhere. I mean, the invariable comment you get, and I'm actually looking for a house here and I, I keep an eye on lots of different markets. There's no supply, there's no supply. I mean, it's pretty much a buyer's market. And this is not just America. I'm sure you have, I know you have that there. Um, you have it everywhere. So, so of course you could argue this is all they're all interlinked, right? If something bad happens in the stock market, eventually it will, with a lag, will follow into all of these other end markets. But we're certainly not there right now. I think the other thing you're seeing for, for certain luxury markets, um, I've had so many of the big European luxury goods names described to me forever, how the US is really an emerging market for luxury goods. Interesting. And frankly, the last couple of years have borne that out. Now it's it's helped by the fact that you have such strong asset markets. You know that is a role to that. But in many ways, you're getting there despite the fact that premiums to European prices are much higher. Uh, for European luxury goods, for example, are priced much higher in the US. Uh, some of it is you can't travel or you weren't able to travel. It's the usual stuff you're spending on stuff because you can't travel and all that. But there is, you know, the penetration of luxury goods, for example, is much lower in the US than almost anywhere else in the world, certainly much less than China, which is the big great white hope. Um, so I think for now, the high end consumer is in pretty good shape unless you get a really big shock again, like um, uh, 2009. If you look at what's happened over the last three, six months, you did see a pretty hairy correction in the stock market and company after company that's reported in that space. You know, I can remember when there is more resilience than we give credit for out there, even at, I mean, just sticking even to the high end. And in the sense that a William Sonoma, way back when, the first time you had a wobble in the stock market, William Sonoma would be telling you, we've seen a bit of a drop off in demand. That didn't happen. With, with their most recent announcement. And that came at the peak of the Ukraine issues. And that came at the peak of the, and we'll see what RH says tonight with, with their numbers. But some of it is of course, they're in a sweet spot category, but you think the compares are getting very difficult. So you should be starting to see a bit of a roll off in orders anyway. 
but you didn't get that, I think. And, and some of it is she's, it's a much better company and we can come to that than what it was pre-COVID. And frankly, going back, that improvement has been happening for a while, just accelerated. Um, so I think there's a lot more resilience even in that consumer than, than, than you give. And I think, I think you hit it on the head in terms of some of the inflationary issues hit a lower income customer much more than anybody else because... And it's not just gas, right? I think gas is a bit of a misnomer. There have been periods when you've had really high gas prices and it isn't that big a part of the budget of a consumer, right? People think, oh my God, the consumer is going to swoon. They don't. I mean, you know, this is, it has a temporary effect, but the issue this time is it's not just gas, it's food. It's, it's you know, it's, it's your utilities. It's every, and utilities and stuff are the really bad thing here in Europe, much less so than what you have in America. Um, but at the same time, you can't ignore the fact that you had a slew of companies from Target, Starbucks, you know, $15 minimum wage, $17 minimum wage, $18, cost goes up in the 20s. There are, even that customer is seeing big wage increases that cushion some of that blow. I'm not saying it goes away, but even for that customer. And so, you know, people love the dollar stores, but that to some extent is the only piece where you've seen some stress. And when I say stress, because I look at this, you know, as to where you were relative to pre-COVID, um, you know, they had a really big pandemic to start with. But now a dollar general, for example, and a dollar tree particularly, are running well behind what a Kroger's doing, what a Walmart's doing on a, on a two, three year basis. And that tells me that, customer has some stress um, and she or he is also buying much less <clears throat> discretionary stuff you know they're, they're buying more basics over there they're buying less than you know they won't just pop in that little toy into their basket or they won't you know that, that little luxury they used to buy there and you see it in their margins because the margins are seeing some pain but it's still not as horrible as you would think i mean you know dollar general is still up about 11 points on com but it's you know, versus pre-pandemic, whereas <clears throat> Kroger, which was a business I've never had, I have grudging respect for, let's say, I've never had huge respect because of the way it was managed. Kroger is still 15, 16, as good as Walmart, which used to just thrash it about before. So <clears throat> I think there's more resil resilience than we give credit for. And the stronger brand you have, you continue to scoop up, I think. Yeah, I mean, let's, you know, one of the one of the themes that that I was playing for a while, and I still think that it comes true, you know, it, it's still, it's still prevalent is that, you know, COVID forced companies, uh, probably across every industry, to really get their house in order. I mean, you know, one, you had a you, you had a haltage of some of your business, you had a chance to focus internally more, but you had you had to get into this survival mode, because you didn't know what was going to happen. And, and the the operating efficiencies, you know, use Williams-Sonoma. I mean, the renegotiation of leases broadly, the closing of unprofitable or not as profitable stores, get, you know, raising your, you know, reducing your SKUs, getting better margins. All of those operating efficiencies are not one-time events. Those things pay dividends for years and years and years. And, and management teams are probably gonna be very stubborn about sticking to those things before they start going back to the old ways. And, and I don't think that that's been born into valuations at all. I, I think you're absolutely right because we're stuck in this debate and we have been about what's a COVID winner or a loser and I'm gonna give everything back because I was a COVID winner, right? And, and I think that's where 
there is so little credit given to certain companies becoming a whole lot better than they were pre-COVID, right? So the biggest example I used to get was Depot, right? Home Depot. And um, oh, and I have so many people come back to me and say, oh, the government just mandated, gave them a big advantage. Everybody had to close while they were open. Yes, but they took it and they ran with it, right? I mean, they, they, okay, so DIY is a very special category. They, they don't have to worry about Amazon. So they're happier in that sense. But even so, Depot and Lowe's did exactly, even more so Lowe's, did, did a whole lot of what you're talking about, which is the fact that they used the pandemic to become better businesses, right? That doesn't go away. I mean, you you use that, you, you yes, you got an advantage to start with, but you invest your scale, you invest your benefits in technology, better product, your, your um, stores, and your offer, like an online offer, uh, your online offer, um, and make a better proposition to a consumer, which then becomes harder for your previous competitor to compete with because they're subscale. Suddenly they haven't invested on all those things. They play catch up. And, and another example is Dick's, right? I mean, if you look at Dick's Sport and Roots, um, you, you can argue the company over-earned, et cetera, over crisis. I have so much respect for a company that had nothing to start with in an online business, right? And after COVID, suddenly 35% of its business, in some ways, I find it even more impressive than William Sonoma RH because they had the building blocks. They were digital first, or at least Sonoma was, RH is somewhere in the middle, was a digital first company. Anyway, Dix had no experience in this. And, and basically, effectively, over a third of the business now comes from the internet, and they built it over two years. I mean, you know, that's a management team under stress that's nimble and adapts. I mean, Best Buy, I mean, I, I, I don't understand that category in many ways. Uh, and I do, in a way, because we were just talking about consumer tech. Um, but again, a business closed overnight. It's, 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 you know, half of its business was coming online. And now, okay, it normalizes to a third. It didn't have that capability before. It has it today. And those things you don't lose, right? I mean, you, you, these companies are much better businesses. And, and I would argue the valuation does not give credit for that. And, you know, it, it just looks at the fact that, oh, you over-earn and all that over-earning is going to disappear out the window and you're going to go back to where you were. And, and you see it every day in stocks like RH and Williams-Sonoma, all these names, actually, because, you know, on the day when, when, when you know, COVID winners go up, everything else goes down, you know, well, and, and many of these COVID winners these days go down regardless every day almost because you've seen it, you've seen that picture play out in tech, right? Everything that... They get bashed every day. And these, these names are getting bashed every day for the same reason. And, and yet, if you look at the numbers these companies are putting up, they're, they're still pretty darn good. And they keep deferring that point of when you think over-earning, oh my God, they're going to keep go. You know. and, and my point with many of these companies is even if you normalize the earnings for to a much lower level, you assume, yes, there is over-earning. You, you shouldn't be making a 20% margin. Cut it back to... 10, 11, 12. And I do think they're much better businesses than they were. So I don't think you go back to the six, seven, eight, nine percent margin they had pre-COVID. These things are still trading at about 14, 15 times earnings. And at 14, 15 times, that was the multiple they had pre-COVID. So why would I put them at, you know, it, you know, way lower multiple and think, oh my God, there's too uncertainty and I don't too much. But that's the disconnect we're playing with with some of these companies. Yeah, and, and that's the that's the opportunity. You know, unfortunately, you have to go. You have to go through the period of the market believing that everything reverts back and, you know, retailing's a crappy business and blah, 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 you know, all those things. And they're all going to revert to the same multiples that they've always had. But then you get, you know, one quarter. Well, that's an anomaly. Then another quarter. Well, you know, 
that can't sustain itself. And that, you know, I mean, I've read tons of reports from the sell side and the buy side. And in most cases, there is this, uh, oh, they're over earning, their margins are historic, they're all going to mean revert back. And, and I believe the second, third tier brands, they will, right? They shouldn't have been there to begin with. The Macy's, the Dillard's, you know, those kind of names, even, even Nordstrom. Um, but but the names that you know Nike that has gone to DTC. So I'd I'd love to hear your opinion. Let me we can kind of go down you know industry by industry and just talk you know from a from an athleisure perspective. You know the Nikes, the Lulus, the Adidas. You know any any viewpoints on on that particular area? I think again it's a trend that obviously also another thing that went on fire after COVID because we were all spending a whole lot of time at home about exercise. First of all, it's the kind of stuff you wear. Um, I just think those companies are quite unique in terms of, yes, the sector probably trades, but I mean, you know, can that kind of pace of demand continue? Probably not, but your share within that and actually what Nike in particular is doing, um, uh, and actually many very good consumer discretionary companies are doing that where they control more and more control of your own distribution. And I think that is something that's going to pay and pay and pay. I mean, the pace at Nike, and if you think about it, the Nike is a very big company, right? In terms of how big its distribution is, uh, or distribution footprint is. And yet, even for a company of that size, I think I was looking at numbers of this when the last Nike numbers came out. I think it went from literally 33 points being on retail to 42 or 43 points in the space of two or three years. I mean, it's freaky, right? You're talking about a company with billions and billions of dollars of sales. And that's that's a marker of, a, of your intention out there about the fact that you can... And again, it's another case of just like we were talking about, it's self-fulfilling scale, right? The bigger you get, the more profitable your marginal store or your website becomes. And again, the internet allows them a really profitable way of um, doing it without a whole lot of capital in terms of bringing more of that distribution in-house. And then the other thing that does, if you think about it, and it, you know, Zara is a good case in point. I mean, in the sense that if you control your own distribution chain, you get better feedback on what works and what doesn't work much sooner. So ultimately what's gonna happen with Nike, I think, and it already probably is, is the feedback loop gets much shorter. You start designing product that sells for a fuller price better, and you, you keep changing ranges faster. You know, you can maximize a line that is working, that isn't working. I mean, this has been the Zara principle forever, right? So that 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 whole benefit, that's the other side, is not just the fact that I capture more gross profit because I'm going to take this shoe away from Foot Locker and sell it myself. It's because I can sell it more profitably because I know what works better and what doesn't work better and what doesn't need to be discounted 60%. I'm going to make less of that next year or next month. You know, so I, I think, I think... You obviously have to watch because with some categories like this, and I true about luxury goods as well, you don't want to become too common. So you, where your brand becomes uncool, that's a bit of a death knell for some of these things. So, and that's why I'm always a bit cautious of, and this is my bias, right? Is of apparel and and generally companies more geared to apparel, particularly when you're apparel geared to younger people. Um, because the choices are pretty fickle and and you see it and those stocks are just complete hedge fund battlegrounds right it's just like shorting the hell out of something I mean, and just you're literally trading every quarter uh you know from 
all the way from an Abercrombie to an Urban Outfitters. I mean, I, I, I think there's some structural issues with those companies, but that seems to be, so that's a different space. And it's interesting because that was a hot space for a while uh, over the last few months, because, oh my God, we're going to go out and spend on things we haven't spent on, so apparel. And now, you know, it, it, it just is hard. And it, my, you talked about what is a COVID and in my view, many of those companies are not long-term winners. I mean, they're, you know, many of these companies stand up and tell you, oh, look how well we've done. Uh, you know, our margins are structurally higher. Well, your margins are structurally higher because you were supply constrained. The consumer was dying to spend on this stuff. So no wonder you have record margins, but it's all because your gross margin has done this. I don't see a whole lot of cost efficiency or anything coming through or, or you becoming... And so I think that is the sort of stuff that will mean revert. I mean, you will not, I mean, supply will normalize for many of these things. If you're not creating something that's desirable that I want to pay up more for, yes, you might do well right now. I, I don't think it's going to last. I mean, it, you know, the other equivalent example is what's happening with lodging right now, right? I mean, right now, hotel rates are through the roof. I mean, it's just like ritz carlton is 30 percent and that's obviously the highest end so it also exemplifies everything else we're saying 30 percent above pre-covid rates and they're seeing no resistance right these things are getting booked out i mean but i don't know how long that lasts i mean you know that that's another thing of i i need to have my holiday this year but once i've had it next year things normalize will i be willing to pay that much you know maybe we've taught consumers they're gonna pay more but it does come down to what else do i have to spend on yeah, I mean, li listen, we, you know, the, the first step in my experience is, is we, we start to moan and groan, but we still yeah. spend. And, and then we start to, to make the this versus that. Okay, I, I can't, I'm getting it squeezed from every angle. I have to make a choice, right? My, maybe my wages have gone higher, but my cost structure has gone higher. And so I'm yeah. not feeling as flush as, as, I, as I was or I'd, as I'd like to be. And so do I have to make a choice between, you know, going down one level on the hotel, because we're not going to defer our vacation, we're going to have a vacation. But maybe we don't go out and get something for the house. Or maybe we, you know, don't go out to that nice restaurant, maybe we go to the other restaurant that's, that tends to be cheaper, maybe we cook from home a little bit more, whatever, you know, so in the in the broad consumer, you know, landscape, what areas do you think that the market really just doesn't understand that there's some been there's been some structural positivity to to businesses or or industry groups within spending or or the consumer wallet versus the valuations? To, to me, it's kind of I mean we we touched on on some of the furniture retailers already, and I think you know the thing is something like a Wayfair has taken everything down with it, you know, in terms of, and, and that Wayfair experience really was a company that was in the right space. Everyone was spending at home and that's almost like become a bellwether. So every time Wayfair has a problem, everybody else has a problem. And the point is the two companies we are talking about, RH and Sonoma have very different brands to that. You know, they're companies that have invested in better product um, better capabilities um, better, you know, assortments and um, presence they're not just right in the right place at the right time or even if they were they use that to build something better um and, and there's so many other companies i mean you know for example another example i, I find and this is where I, I think it's a little bit controversial but let's see you know the orders historically is a space where so many people have gone to die about like price discipline in the car space 
And it's, it's fascinating because you have a, have a unique moment right now for now two years running because of chips, there is hardly any supply of new cars. Um, used cars are at ridiculous prices. And this is not just a US issue, it's here. I mean, uh, you know, I have this weird issue where um, I'm actually buying a new car and I'm going to actually get more for my car than I paid for it, my, the car that I'm going to get rid of. Silly, right? I think that's, um, but I have very little hope that that's going to last for, uh, for the mainstream brands of, of, of Ford, General Motors, Volkswagen, I, Renault. I, I just, it's, I think beyond the point, you need to cover fixed costs and these companies are just so wedded to the show volume mentality. Where I think there is probably an, a bit more realization that if you're a BMW or a Mercedes and or a Porsche or an Audi, do you need to go back to that? I mean, you know, if you, you know, why was I discounting as much as I was? And you've seen something quite unique where even at a VW for all its flaws of so many different stakeholders, which means it rarely takes the right decisions that satisfy everyone. You did see very openly prioritizing chips to the highest margin models of Porsche, the highest margin models of Audi would never have happened in the past. And, and, and it's just interesting that you've seen what that's done, that you have, this is unheard of, right? For these car companies to lose 10% of volume and still grow profits 10, 15, 20%. It has to teach you something as long as you have the right leaders. Now, and I think there's much more chance of it holding there than it is for the mainstream car makers where I think it is much harder because it, you know, the consumer is conditioned to live with, I've been taught that you just, the value of the car goes down over time. Therefore, I've always got to strike a hard bargain. I've got to get all these. I mean, you remember all that, right? The, the credit deals and the 100,000 mile warranty stretching from like five years to 10 years, you know, just <clears throat> so it's it's just, and, and yet some of the, the higher end car makers are priced exactly as they were. BMW, for example, or um, <clears throat> Mercedes, you, you still think, oh no, I'm not going to pay more than five, six, seven, eight times earnings because this is still the same cyclical thing it always was on the analyst speak, just like that. Um, I think, you know, I really veer towards, obviously, look, the market's gone a long way. You know, things aren't cheap, but I still find that the skepticism, I keep coming back to this thing of, um, what are structural winners in this market? And more often than not, they are companies that have become a whole lot better through COVID. I mean, it's things like Target, things like, um, you know, it, it's interesting because I think Starbucks, for example, or, or and even McDonald's, you know, it's just, I had so many of these conversations with, with, with people back in 2020 and lots of pushback about, they were, they suffered these businesses, right? You were, you couldn't, you went, but again, the adaptability and like Starbucks and McDonald's would never have the same margins again. No, sir, because now this is all going to be takeaway. You don't have the, they built flipping businesses. You know, that is reinventing a model where you just go completely to takeaway. You go completely to, you know, think about it, right? Because a business like Starbucks lost its main day part, the breakfast commute, it still doesn't really have it. In, in most of the world, um, even markets as far as India, you know, most offices are work from home. I mean, yeah, so different markets in different stages, but you've completely reinvented yourself by basically comping 10, 15% above where you were pre-COVID, having 
one half probably of the business you had of people sitting in a meeting. You know, and that says a lot about the resilience of some of these businesses to me and, and the fact that that, you know, you still have, and McDonald's is much more mature, but you still have a fair footprint to grow uh, for something like a Starbucks, for example, um, pretty much around the world. And now in a much more sensible way where you have a more, you know, a franchisee focus as opposed to you don't deploy quite as much capital as somebody else does. Um, and right now it's in the crosshairs, right? It's in the crosshairs because, oh, there's unionization happening and, oh, there's China, China's going to fall out of bed. And yes, you, I think those things are potential opportunities because it's quite good for China to fall out of bed right now when it's still only about, you know, 15% of profits rather than China is going to be 40, 50% of the business and falls out of bed. It's, 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 it's you know, the, the impact of, of all of this on these companies is a lot less um, if you look at any sort of longer term valuation than the shock horror that we tend to get. It, you know, what happened with Nike, right? It suddenly went from, you know, from what, what was it? Almost almost 200 bucks back to almost 100, almost halved, right? Because Vietnam stopped and this is stopped and what are they going to say? And, what, and well-managed companies and the desirability of their brands, I think if they have anything, they've, they've shown that A, they can navigate it. And Nike did have a, a horror story last year, right? When they suddenly... They cut people's, they, they made people cut their estimates 25% percent. Right. They tried to get you to laugh it off, like there's nothing there. Um, <clears throat> the good thing is there's now confidence from that level and the stock I think can work from here. Um, but, but all these companies have hairy moments too. I mean, you know. Well, what's your take on, uh, I mean, I don't own Starbucks now. Um, that, that whole industry, we, ha we had Chipotle at one time, but we just decided <clears throat> To move away from there, just so many different headwinds for those businesses. But you know, what's your take on the Howard Schultz coming back? I mean, I, it's interesting how you know they he hands the reins to hands the keys to somebody for a while, and it may or may not work really well. And next thing you know, he's coming back to save the day again. <laughs> I mean, it's a fascinating one, right? Because um, he comes with all the history, right? So it was like he came back, and again, he did turn it around fantastically. And now, once again, oh, we've got these unionization headwinds, we've got the Chinese headwinds, and that's why he's come back to save it. The interesting thing is, um, basically, the, the, you know, barring what's happened in China, and I, we'll see what happens with unionization, you know, but barring the issue in China, and that's, COVID, and, I, I, and in fairness, I don't think Starbucks has been 100% honest about China altogether, I'll say that, um, about, I think it's a, we can talk about that a bit more, but it, the, the previous guy, Ken was doing a very good job. I mean, if you look at what this thing was doing before, A, before COVID, and frankly, what he's done during COVID was very good in terms of transforming the business to a much more, to other day parts outside of breakfast, other creating other occasions for your beverages, creating, I mean, you just look at the US comp over the last three, four, uh, last couple of years, it's been phenomenal. Um, but obviously there, there are some headwinds right now. Um, don't, don't know, I mean, I, I just, China is, it does worry me a little. And I just say it worries me because the company kind of batted on that exposure. You know, they bought into the Chinese franchise. So it's, the US and China are the two main company-owned markets where they actually own their stores. 
Um, and they did that relatively recently, making that big bet. And I think one of the issues with that always was um, that the business is starting to mature a little bit in China and they're, they're never fully honest. You know, you just say, listen, I'm going to cannibalize some of my stores. And, and fair enough, because you, you're the economics are good for the new stores and the economics remain decent for the existing stores, even losing some volume because the ROICs were obscene in China, right? Um, that honesty isn't fully there. You, you know, it's still uh, the comp store is a blip, you know, uh, you know, it's just like, um, there's always a new headwind, but that's become so consistent now that you should pretty much say very clearly, our strategy is to build out new stores. You're not going to say great comps for a while. Um, and, but the beauty of something like the US uh, is, you know, there is much, there is almost no competition in the US quite candidly. I mean, you, you've seen, I, I remember all the stories about McDonald's is going to kill them with their cheap coffee. And there is something quite unique about Starbucks in the US. Um, and there are markets where Starbucks fails. I mean, it did not work in Australia because you don't have the heft. There are other people, people are snooty about coffee. It's always been a fascinating thing to me, right? About why um, in most international markets, the UK, for example, they're nowhere near as successful as they are in the US because there are there's, there were at one point four big competitors. There is now one big competitor, which is now owned by Coke. Um, and that competitor is also growing its footprint in China. So you have to accept with that brand that there is nothing is going to look like the US. The US is just too special for them. US and Canada, if you want to put it that way. Even in Canada, you have Tim Hortons. But, um, but that said, it is still a pretty iconic brand that still has quite a lot of white space ahead of it in many, many countries compared to where it is, particularly because now they're a lot more sensible and they're doing it in a capital light way mm -hmm. as opposed to as opposed to what they've done in China, which is put a whole lot of capital and own everything. Right, right. From, from I mean, you know, you've, you, I love your, by the way, your, your, your tweets around earnings are just awesome. I mean, I, I've used so many of your tweets, just keeping my team engaged. And, and you'll be like, dude, that you, you just had a chance to go through that whole no, no. <laughs> here's a here's a I pasted I cut and pasted a really smart dude's information about this about this I'm going to do my full write-up but like these are the great you know little 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 bullet points from a guy who's got way more experience than I do even and I've been doing this for 30 years but I but I haven't been on your side for that long I've done a lot of different things in in the industry you know you, you correct me if I'm wrong you have you're a pretty pretty decent bull from a from a luxury perspective, right? Would you say that in general, or maybe there's a couple of categories that you really think have long legs, or would love to hear your thoughts on the luxury side? You know, I've I've loved those names for a long time, and and the reason why I've loved those names is it's a lot, it's much better understood now because if you, it, but the fact is they're global growth companies. They are global growth companies, and for a long time, they were not recognized as that. And I say that in the sense that the desirability of what they sell um, is huge, particularly where wealth is being created, which is Asia and the US. Um, and I, I do make a pretty big distinction between European luxury and 
American luxury. And uh, when I say I, with no disrespect, I mean things like Ralph Lauren, you know, that uh, that kind of name, which also carries a lot of baggage anyway, because there's a whole mainstream portion, which is polo and also, frankly, stuff that was sold in TJX, which is or, or made for calls, right? I mean, that sort of stuff, straddling purple label, it's a little confusing for the customer and frankly doesn't have the legacy that again we're talking about who's blessed and you're blessed with a 200 year old european brand that you can point to you know and um so i think first of all the 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 attraction of those names uh, and the beauty about i think this is true for america this is true less so perhaps about in europe but true about asia and when we've had these cycles before, where there's going to be a big corruption crackdown in China and people are going to be really upset because, you know, this is like unequal. I don't, I'm not an expert in sociology, but a lot of Asian people, most Asian people I know, and, and from what I've seen in terms of mass opinion, people don't hate the luxury goods. They hate the corrupt people who buy them. Right. So I'll still keep aspiring to buy that Vuitton bag. It does not. It does not stay in that brand. It just doesn't. You know, and and I think that is just time and again, it's kind of been the issue. And, and so I think I think not everybody in luxury is equal. One, um, I think clearly we're in a very special position right now where um, we are we have been in a very strong financial market. So that is obviously helping consumption. So you've got to take and you've had COVID when particularly rich people couldn't spend a whole lot on experiences are spending a lot on these goods. But again, these are companies have done one thing, which is they're actually actively some of the, and I think it depends on the category as well. So I'm not a big fan of apparel, just like luxury, but in fairness, if you look at most of the names in luxury, you know, everything that fills the headline is what XYZ designed today and what was worn on the catwalk. They make 90% of their money from leather goods. So that, you know, it's, it is irrelevant really that the fashion side of things to them so there's much less fashion risk than you think for these companies for that reason as well and then the other thing they're actually the sensible ones are now starting to do is one there's a whole lot more newness than there ever was so again and this is was happening pre-covid but it's almost an asset now which is ways to kind of up the price as such quite candidly is by by increasingly newer and newer, much more newness than you would have seen and on iconic stuff frankly it is demand destruction they are deliberately lifting prices i mean some of them are more greedy than the others so i think i put someone like a chanel in a very in a in a greedy space but but there is some science to it they're trying to you're no longer luxury if everybody's carrying it out there right so so you 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 have to at some point and, and there was a point where you know, you have, and you have now, $5,000 bags available off the shelf. And so what do you do? You take the price point up to 10,000 in the space of a year and a half. So some of it is you do it because you can, but some of it is actively, you are expecting, my volume will not be the same at 5,000 as it was at 10,000, but my product becomes a whole lot more exclusive. Um, and and it has all sorts of halo effects on the brand in some ways. Ordinarily, I would have said, you know, the emperor has no clothes if things turn down and what's going to happen because suddenly no one can afford that price point. But you are actually creating something that has secondary market value because it becomes rare, which is why something like an Hermes has never been subject to the same fluctuations because there's limited production runs, there's limited volume out there and tends to hold up a whole lot better. 
some uh, Rolex historically was terrible at this in terms of mismanaging its production. And now you're at the stage where you can't get a Rolex for people have wait lists for two years and, and you know the secondary market values and many of these things have soared, you know. So it's 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 a very interesting phase. The thing that troubles me a little about luxury is just the amount of price increases that have happened, but I can see some of the sense behind it. And I think the thing that gives me that I like longer term is just the desirability in the penetration in the US is still very low. Um, and in in most of the developing world. Um, uh, Europe, Europe's never been a huge people coming from overseas to buy in Europe has always been a much bigger deal than locals in Europe buying stuff. So I think, you know, it's, it's, um, yeah, but, but you're right. I mean, it's been a very strong market. And the reason why that I think the breadth of everything flying off the shelves, everything luxury has to do with the fact with the fact that asset markets are very strong and some of that froth will come out. Sure. But again, yeah. You know, I, I could literally talk to you for three more hours. Um, <laughs> that's just, you know, I, I, when I when I started this, you know, five years ago, it was just a passion project. It was just one of those things that I'm, I'm just a big consumer guy and a big brand loyalist. And I was shocked that just nobody did anything with brands, you know, that, that you end up seeing a lot of these great brands and portfolios, but nobody ever just said, I'm going to anchor to brand relevancy. And, and I'm just, I geek out on this stuff. So I have two quick questions for you uh, before, we, before we head out. You know, the, the U.S. home improvement, Home Depot, Lowe, Sherwin-Williams, strong, strong performers. Then interest rates start to go up. Mortgage rates start to go up. You know, now yeah. the narrative is the housing market's dead. And yes, if you're a new home buyer, first time home buyer, it, it's harder. You need bigger down payments. Your mortgage payments are going to be higher. You know, I see value in there with these drawdowns and just curious if you, you know, have any views on the Home Depots and Lowe's and the Sherwins, you know, those kinds of names in a sector that right now is, is you know, kind of a little bit loathed. I, I think I do. And I think it's, it's a couple of things. So I think once again, it comes back to the fact that I think these are much better businesses than they were pre-COVID. They took what they had and they ran with it. Um, if you look at Depot over the years, right, because this is this argument about house prices and everything. I can't remember any year over the last five, six years when the analysts have not said that this is going to be this, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, sales are going to normalize. And if you look at something that's happening with that business, it's pretty incredible, right? Because you're comping against periods when you had, I mean, two year comps at 20, 30%. And that point about it keeps getting pushed out, right? In terms of the fact that things are going to normalize and they're going to come back. And, um, and you'll remember, you're still at the point where they're still saying we're actually whatever we have, we sell out. We're still struggling with what we can't sell. And you, yeah, you've done a whole lot with the DIY customer, but for the do it for me customer, he's still, you know, there's huge pent up demand still left there. So I just think a there is more. And and the other fascinating thing that someone pointed out to me the other day is. Yes, you're exactly right. For a new home buyer, it's kind of you know first time buyer, it's kind of interesting. But the majority of people have already refinanced at much lower levels than what you're actually at to fixed rates than what you're seeing out there in terms of, you know, people saying, oh, my God, the primary, it's, it's 4% now and it's climbing. Well, most people aren't paying that. Um, and the home is your main focus of investment. And I think the other thing, Home Depot is just exemplary, right? If you look at that PL, 
it is a textbook retail PL. You will consistently see sales decent, of course. Expenses, almost whatever the scenario, they, they flex so well that there's almost always expense leverage. Um, <clears throat> almost any other business. We've got incentive comp, we've got this, we've got that coming, you know, because we've done so well, blah, 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 that there's always a point when expenses are running ahead of sales. I can't remember. I mean, this company doing these kinds of comps that we're talking about and its expense growth is one-tenth of what it's actually putting out in sales. And that to me is such a well-managed business that, uh, I don't know, I have a lot of good things to say about them. I, I kind of agree with you. I mean, I, I, I've heard those macro arguments and they've been on for a while, um, but they're nothing new. I mean, you know, so. I think people love to call the end of things, right? The, the death of the consumer. I mean, you know, the, the consumers are gonna stop spending. I mean, listen, this is nowhere like 2007 when consumers in the US were flipping houses double, triple levered. I mean, that, that, that is so far from where we are. We had a massive deleveraging after 08 and consumer balance sheets are as healthy relative to disposable income. The, their house prices are off the charts. If you own a home, yes, rents are higher. I mean, the, 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 overall, there's always gonna be some problems in a category, but overall yeah. the consumer is as healthy as they've ever been. And to me, consumer sentiment being on the floor is more of a contrarian indicator. It's just gonna take a little time, you know? So I guess, you know, what I'd love to do to, since we're kind of at the end of our time, just for fun, this is not investment advice audience. We are just two friends talking about stocks. If you had to close your eyes and buy five consumer stocks for the next 20 years, not look at them, just say, these are my favorite businesses or, or spending categories that I think are the most resilient, I mean, across, it could be tech, it could be autos, could be electric vehicles, it could be apparel, whatever. What five companies do you think you, would just allow you to sleep at night that you just, you just feel really good about these businesses and these management teams? If, if there are five that you just, you know, you just really love. So, um, interesting question because if I if I just leave aside valuations, we've I mean, had these exercises at my previous firms, you know, both at Lance Bernstein at City, you know, it was like, there was a whole thing about what are the best companies and the best investments, right? But over the long term, the best companies are the best investments. In the very short term, you make this trade about, you know, what can be. And I think about it a lot. And I think I think that's how I kind of like to, 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 to manage money myself. I mean, among the companies that put right up there, I think, is, is Estee Lauder. Um, uh, and it plays into almost everything. It's such a dominant portfolio in terms of, and again, you don't realize they own, there are two approaches in, in, in beauty to me. There's the L'Oreal approach where you're very focused on a couple of brands and you're the Estee Lauder approach where you basically own every single premium brand in the business. So I think women are going to continue to want to look good, to look after their skin. Men increasingly are a big market of that as well. Um, and I think the companies are much more sensible about it. And people are going to, I, th I think trading up is going to continue regardless of the biggest boost to these companies, people trading up from Ole and stuff to, to the Estee Lauder stable of brands um, or the Longcom stable of brands. So I think the economics continue to be very good there. And again, big global growth stories. Um, this is a funny one. I'd like the RH business managed by Laura Alber, which is the WSM CEO. I just think between them, yeah. I think she is a fan, 
fantastic CEO. She's the best CEO I've seen in all of retail, in my view, really underrated. Just what they've been able to achieve with the brands that they have, which are very good brands. But, um, you know, and, and so it, it managing managing an RH, and I'm not sure how great she'd feel about that, because, uh, you know, uh, but anyway, you can leave that aside. Um, but I like I like those. I, I like a lot of what RH has in terms of, you know, I've always been a bit skeptical of Gary's bombast. And I don't think the, the market is as <laughs> big, but, I, but it's plenty big. That's it. It's plenty big. And he, and they are doing something unique, which is bringing the same design ethic into furniture in a way that is not there, you know? And, 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 you know, I mean, again, this is all a very high, where I'm a bit more realistic about RH is the fact that, you know, this is, this is a very high-end product. This is not. This is not going to be the Walmart of furniture. Which sometimes he's not trying to say that, but when he talks about an opportunity, it almost is like, no, this this business. Well, anyway, we can go on. But but yes, yeah, so I, I I like those businesses in in, in that sense. But um, and really, if if you had her managing that business, like I said, that would be another struggle to close my eyes and and, and kind of buy. Um, what are I? I would say some of the European luxury goods companies, I think Richemont per se, I, I get very annoyed with how cautious that business is. Um, and it's one of the most cautious, whereas LVMH, which is everybody's favorite, and I think LVMH is a very good business, is much more gung-ho and arguably a better investor of other luxury businesses. But the core brand at, at Cartier, I think, is 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 quite considerably undervalued and underappreciated in the luxury good space. Um, you'll notice that I just feel, and I can almost feel the bias when I'm telling you everything else is, is everything I'm mentioning to you is, is, is oriented to the high end. But some of that is because the brands are phenomenally strong in that space. I, I like Nike very much, I think, in terms of just what it's doing in terms of, and the way that company has reinvented itself um, over time. Um, and I think, Again, if 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 I haven't looked at Ferrari enough, but again, we're just I think we're piling on too much to the space. But I do really look forward to the Porsche IPO if, if and when it comes out. You and me both. <laughs> exactly. I just need to get it done. I would love to own that that single business. I mean, it. You know, I they've not really talked about Audi though, have they? I mean, Audi just kind of stays, and and Porsche gets to potentially you know depart. I mean, to me, I mean, you know, Porsche is still a little bit different than Audi, but both of them are businesses that I would love to own separately if I could. But but Porsche is just just killing it right now. Porsche is just something else. I mean, if Audi is Mercedes, BMW, you can buy those companies. Porsche is still just something special as a brand. I mean, and you see it every which way do you see it, right? Look at the secondary classic Porsches, you know, the, the new ranges. You look at, um, and... I think you and I have had banter about the Taycan, but I mean, Tesla high-end Taycan, I don't know that much about mileage. There's no, no comparison. And I know lots of people get their, the hair on their back stands up when you say this sort of stuff, but just the styling of that car, it doesn't look like a, an, an electric car. And I like that. Um, you know, it, it looks like a car, like a car in my view is supposed to look like <laughs> Right. With, with all the cool so you know it's it's yeah and i think i think that's where we are i i really you know it, 
beyond that, I'm kind of starting to struggle a little bit. I think there are longer term franchises that I really like. I think I think there's a lot of white space still ahead for a brand like Starbucks. There's a lot of aspirational cool that you don't understand many ways, Eric. Uh, and for you and me, it's quite a banal experience to walk into a Starbucks. Um, but for many people in China or India, it's where you go to have an aspirational drink. I mean, and I've, I've seen Starbucks launch in the Indian market myself and the people almost why to pay the higher prices. It's, it's a fashion statement to pay. Because you can get flipping coffee outside for 10p, but you'll pay pricing that's higher than the US. And, and it's somewhere to go to. And it's inculcating that habit, you know, in terms of, it's kind of like what, not quite what Coke was 20, 30 years ago. Well, Coke's had problems for a while. I'd probably say Coke had problems 30, uh, what Coke was like maybe 30 years ago is where, where Starbucks is today in terms of global reach and distribution. And then there's the whole potential it has in the at-home market, you know, not and you're much further along in the US. And the fact that you're still growing and I have to say, I just, you know, nothing. I mean, I am such a huge admirer of Amazon as well. It's just, I just think it's, you know, people people go on about AWS and 3P, 1P, you know, AWS more specifically. I mean, in its home market, right, 30 years on, that company has been growing effectively 20% year in year or 20% in your own home market. I mean, just the ability to reinvent what it does. It's just, you know, and, and you've had so many people say, oh, the site looks confusing now. I find this confusing, that confusing. I just think for many of us, it's it's just a habit now, really. I mean, you An just... unbelievable habit. I mean, it is amazing if you just look at a Apple and Amazon and Google and Microsoft, these big companies being able to grow the way they have grown for the last 10 years at their size in their scale, I mean, who knows if we're, you know, I, I think the Activision deal will get will get passed with Microsoft, but I mean, it's amazing that that these big companies are continuously moving into those into other areas, and you know, maybe at some point that people, you know, the FTC here has a problem with the, with their size, yeah. but their yeah. ability to grow and delight customers, I mean. That, but you know what, Eric, you've reminded me of something. And this is not just applicable to these companies. This is applicable to good brands, I say, because I remember PepsiCo, and I'm talking about when I first started analyzing the company, I'm talking about almost 20 years ago now. And this was um, when Roger and Rico ran the company and, you know, stock was at 30 bucks. The stock is about 160, 170 now. And at that point, I joined Smith Barney and we had a big discipline about using the dividend discount model. And this is the same chaps who are now telling you normalize everything, over-earning, over-earning. If you want to call it over-earning, that can go on for a long time because we were, the dividend model framework, and this is the framework that a lot of these people are working on, right? <clears throat> is that you have five years of explicit forecast where the company grows. Then you have to normalize returns because they're super over-earning. And then you put a terminal growth rate, which can't be much above inflation. And I remember PepsiCo, which was always, you could never get more than 40 bucks in it or because, you know, it was never ever gonna grow more than five steps. Okay, you at most make it a, 
eight, 9% grow over five years, and then it's only growing at 2% in perpetuity or whatever. That company has grown 10% every year for the last 20 years. That's normalization. So, you know, it's something to remember when you, and I'm not saying every company does that on the same models. Coke was 50 bucks then, Coke is barely 60 bucks today. So it works for certain things. Certain companies do over earn, but you can't over penalize something that is structurally changing for the better. And I think that's happened to an Amazon, that's happened to a Google. That's, I mean, Amazon, you would have been told at 50 bucks, it was supposed to be expensive. At 2000, it's expensive. At 3000, you know, at 50 bucks, you were saying, oh, I remember this conversation, justify this valuation to me. It's not making money at 50 bucks, you know? Right. Well, it's funny. I, I love the Bill Miller quote when he talks about valuation. He's like, well, you know, in hindsight, Amazon was a raging cheap stock, you know, 25 years ago because of the returns that it's generated and the growth that it's generated. But, you know, if you just look at the current valuation, that's that's somewhat intellectually lazy because you you have to, you know, extrapolate the potential for this company to grow and not only to grow in its current market, but to have the smarts to 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 grow in other different markets. And then when you put a potential multiple on that longer term growth, some of those stocks look incredibly cheap back then. You just, you know, you just had to have faith in the management, in the vision. And that's that's the art of investing, you know, the whole value thing. There's plenty of value traps out there too. And there are absolute growth stocks that are really expensive and maybe will never grow into their valuation, but there's others that really have and will continue. And it's, I think that's one of those fascinations. Tesla for me is one of the examples that everyone continuously underestimates their growth and the passion for the brand. And, and I agree with you. I mean, I have a Model Y and it is not, I would not say Tesla from a construction perspective is anywhere near a Porsche. It just isn't, right? And I'm not even sure it's designed to be, you know? Yeah. But, but they, they clearly have the pole position in EV until all of these brands really get ramped up and, and they're being rewarded for it for a different model in a really important category, being the dominant leader and have you know some wicked sales growth ahead for the next at least couple of years until there's a lot more supply that, that, that there is to choose from. So it's, there's always those outliers. Those that are arguments that Tesla is never gonna make money and it's like a, whatever, it's the same. There are so many parallels in some ways between Amazon and Tesla, right? I mean, you know, it was the disruptor of the space, the people, Walmart, Target, they were dragged kicking and screaming into the web, right? Because it was gonna destroy the way they traditionally did business and the stores are gonna become less profitable. They're still now running behind Amazon for that reason. It's the same. I mean, you know, I've got an internal combustion engine. I, I can't disrupt that model. So I'll make these baby steps to a Tesla, which allowed Tesla to become, you know, you're actually almost feeding the beast yourself by taking these baby steps by these other models that aren't that attractive. I mean, that, you know, don't have the same functionality and you're always playing catch up, but you're never investing quite enough money to catch up either. Right. You know, and I use that same example for net with Netflix and Disney and Paramount and all right. They, they sat by and watched a model that they should have owned had they been willing to disrupt themselves yeah. a little bit. And, and then, you know, I think they probably, you know, big companies, they tend to look at things and say, let's let someone else do the heavy lifting, right? I'm the big brand. When, once I can prove that there is a sustainable market, 
then I can go and build my offering because my brand's so strong. And eventually you probably do catch up in some way, but you, gosh, you leave so much on the table in my mind as an investor. I want someone who's willing to self-disrupt. If there is something to be done, doesn't mean you have to stop doing your current legacy business, but why not be willing to do something else? Think When things change, when consumer habits change, when technology changes, you should want to, you should adopt that and embrace that. But a lot of companies don't. They just wait for someone else to, to carve out the market. I think you're spot on. I mean, it's that whole risk averseness of these teams, which ultimately destroys the very returns that you were trying to protect. I mean, and, and you know, I think Walmart is a good case in point. I mean, things like, you know, you and I bashed Nordstrom for a while. I mean, you know, they're so yeah. I mean, they're so cautious as a management team. I remember when you, you know, and this is a few years ago when they were, you had, I can't remember, was it chatting to Burberry about this? And it was going to be the next big thing. And this is when Burberry wasn't quite as prominent as a luxury brand. And the Nordstrom trial, yes, we're going to bring in Burberry. We're going to put it in 10 stores. 10 out of 120. I mean, who's going to even notice? And then, you know, I remember Angela Orens, who then went on to Apple, was like, and she just says, yeah, have you ever worked with a U.S. department store? That's how they work. I mean, it's, everything is you know, incremental. And then you think that's why the U.S. department stores are so stuck. I mean, talk about that, right? I mean, there was an age when Macy's was where you went to buy everything, right? Now, what do you do? You go to buy bloody Nautica, Polo and Lennox. There's nothing else. I mean, there's just, and there's not a person to be seen for miles to help you. I mean, and, and that's now happened because you don't have the sales to sustain that, to have stuff, you know, it's just a vicious circle. When you don't innovate exactly as you're saying, you then ultimately just destroy whatever was that high return anyway. So it's a, it's a shame because I, I, I think Nordstrom, I mean, everybody else kind of went by the wayside. Nordstrom could have, and I suppose they still could be, be, be this thing that, that just dominates. It's the one place to go because it isn't as easy to get to luxury, but you know, when you go into Nordstrom, Nordstrom to me in the U S has become more of a seasonal thing. It's, you know, you go there once in a while and then, they have a big Q4 because of the holidays and the places are packed and, you know, but, but the rest of the year, it's kind of very situational and that's not what you want for, you know, from your company, you just can't sustain it. And I'm surprised that maybe the family's just rigid and they, they don't want to go private equity. I, I, it would shock me if, if a, a really, you know, like a Blackstone or a KKR couldn't go in there and really help them modernize the new Nordstrom that for whatever reason, they just don't seem interested. You know, they feel like they have the, the, the solution. And yet when you look at the stock price and the, the revenue run rates and the margins and the customer service, they clearly don't, but they don't seem to get, they haven't gotten the message. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. Anyway, well, listen, man, uh, again, I could talk to you for, for hours and hours and hours about the consumer. Yeah. I, I really thank you so much for your time and for your, you. your expertise and I love your tweets. And uh, well, let's let's you know earnings. RH is tonight, so got you know. I'm sure Gary will have lots of rah rah things to say. <laughs> I, I you know we'll see what the quarter looks. Any 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 thoughts on the quarter? Just I mean, you, you think this is going to be kind of a lackluster, very similar to to William Sonoma. You know, su still supply issues, big things to come, blah blah blah. Or or you think there's going to be some 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 positive or maybe even negative stuff. 
I think he's going to be very similar. I have to say, you say like Lester, I thought the Williams-Sonoma quarter was a very good quarter considering you've got a backlog, demand is still strong, business basically outpaced expectations by a mile because we've already, the thing with these stocks is we're already positioned for this, right? You're already positioned for, for weakness and you're actually not getting it. Um, I think it's just what's happening with these stocks. It's almost companies are doing what they can they can't do anything about the stock market and this debate between the bulls and the bears that armageddon is around the corner and the street hates these names have done i mean if you look particularly william sonoma uh, rh also rh has a few more defenders but it's basically the same debate which is over earning i mean you know these companies are particularly more so william sonoma is going to get killed by amazon and if you think about william sonoma um that brand and I mean, the namesake brand, William Sonoma, arguably was, was, has been forever called the most Amazonable brand out of all of retail, right? And it's BS. I mean, if you look at that, but that narrative doesn't go away. And, and people seem to just sit on the same thing. And, and like I said, what I find fascinating about both RH and William Sonoma, actually, um, they were becoming much better companies before COVID. I mean, there's this whole thing about if you think about Gary's whole galleries concept and basically bringing in Irish mortar and Irish contempt, now there've been various issues about why supply chain, he hasn't been able to do it. Likewise, with William Sonoma, the push on to sustainable, to, you know, um, everything that's happening with the brand. I mean, this was all happening. If you look at the returns of these companies, uh, and I'm much closer to William Sonoma before COVID, I know Irish pretty well now, but if you look at her numbers, there was much more drama always with the stock price than there actually was with the business, which was just right. since 2009 has been actually consistently getting better. Um, At nine times earnings. I mean, I, I hope they are buying a metric ton of stock. <laughs> All, you know, I mean, at some point there is going to be an aha quarter that's, you know, these one, these buybacks are going to be super accretive at lower yeah. price because nobody hates a stock at nine or 10 times earnings, whatever it is. And, and they're going to keep executing. And then people are going to start to realize, holy smokes, <laughs> like th th there is some, I mean, work from home everywhere around the world. Yeah. You know, so anyway, well, it's, it, it will, there will always be some fireworks. It'll be interesting. And I think Lulu reports after the, after the close too. So it'll be interesting to hear what they have to say. So uh, I, I will be looking forward to your, your great summaries of earnings. <laughs> so Raul Sharma, yeah. thank you. Thanks a lot, man. We'll, uh, we'll yeah. talk to you again. I appreciate your time. Thanks, okay, right. take care. Yeah. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the Dynamic Brands section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the Dynamic Brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.